namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self enlightened Um, I'm using this book by uh, Vikra Bodhi in the Buddha's words. It's a nice collection. And his uh, translations are very clear and he's got good notes on it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the chapter I'm looking at is Approaching the Dharma. About stuff that I'm sure you've heard about. No dogma, no belief. But I thought we'd just have a look at the scriptures on it, you know. But before we start, I just wanted to go through my little um, categorization here which may be of small interest um, there are we could take five types of um, well, ideologies from one a better word so a fundamentalist we all know what a fundamentalist is basically uh, they think that theirs is the only true mountain yeah so you think you're actually climbing a mountain but really you're descending into a pit <laughs> that's their point of view um, it's a case of I'm right, everybody else is wrong. So obviously, there's going to be contradiction and conflict. Huh? Then you get this relative fundamentalist who has respect for the traditions, yeah, uh, and they're all mountains, but my mountain is bigger and better. See, and whereas uh, whereas yours will stop short, mine will actually reach the ultimate goal. At some point, you've got to come come across and join my mountain. That even happened to me in India, you know, with a Tibetan monk. He told, <laughs> he told me that the, that the Theravada Pass was all right, but, you know, if I wanted really to make it, I'd have to become a Mahayana. <laughs> the, uh, then there's a relativist. So really, the relativist is, in a sense, ignoring their, uh, acknowledging their ignorance of other religions. And they usually say, all mountains are equal, but they're all different. You know, they're all, and it's up to you. It's, it's all relative. And there's no way of telling which is more true to the other. I mean, the only way, realistically, a person can decide whether your path is better or less uh, good as, as, my, uh, as their path is, is by actually doing it. Actually reaching the end by some teacher in, in a path saying, yes, this is the end. And they say, well, hold on, I went one step further. And this is what happened to the Buddha, remember, he went along to these teachers, and they all said, yeah, you've got it. Uh, we want you to teach. We want you to be part of our faculty. And uh, he felt he hadn't, they hadn't quite made it, and he left them. That was two teachers, wasn't it? Uh, and then there was the mortification stuff, you see. That was also another path at the time. Probably best exemplified by um, the Niganta, the, the person who founded uh, the James. See, And even that he found wanting. He just said it was more suffering. Then there's the relativist universalist. And the, the person says, well, if you look below the surface of culture and words, and you find that actually all religions are on the same mountain, because they all, eventually they're all saying the same thing. Although each path is distinct and separate going up the mountain, it's always on the, you're always actually on the same mountain. 
So you find that, especially between this conjunction between Christianity and Buddhism, there's a lot of a lot of work done by a lot of people trying to connect them, um, trying to find a way. And there's books on it, of course. I mean, even Thich Nhat Hanh threw his lot in, didn't he? Uh, what was it called? Buddha? I can't remember. But anyway, there's lots of these uh, efforts, both at a very high theological level. Uh, uh, when I say high, I mean academic. Um, and at, a, and at a, um, an actual practice level where a lot of Christians practice meditation, a lot of Christians practice uh, vipassana. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't see it going the other way. I don't see much going the other way. In fact, I, I read an article about this where the person was saying there was so much connection between Christianity and, and Buddhism and that a lot of Christians were... Um, I mean, I'm not putting a percentage on it, just a lot of Christians uh, practice Buddhist, but he but practice uh, Buddhist things. But he hadn't seen Buddhists, <laughs> you know, move over to uh, things like belief in God and all that, and, and, and a practice of praying to God. I mean, if you don't believe in God, there's no point in praying to Him. Is it? So <laughs> anyway, and then finally, there's the universe. There's the there's the universalist, not the relative universalist, you know, like yours is. There's actually, uh, I would say, the universalist, uh, who sees clearly that beneath all these rites and rituals, customs, cultures, and all that, there are in fact just three ways. And that's the way of insight, the way of knowledge, uh, the way of love, and the way of uh, action. Usually they're all together, and if you look at the, dependent, um, the Eightfold Path, they're there. You start off with right understanding, and then you have right attitude, which is always described as selfishness to generosity, hatred to love, cruelty to compassion. Those are the three examples that come with it. And then you have, of course, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So you have those three ways in the Eightfold Path, but uh, you can see that each religion does put an accent on one of the ways. Buddhism obviously tends to be right understanding. And a lot of its practices are about understanding things. Um, I mean, there is the heart development, but if you were to categorise Buddhism, you'd put it in the path of understanding, I think, first of all. Because that was the Buddha's own uh, path. You don't uh, don't hear the Buddha practising metta before his liberation. I'm sure he did, but you don't... I I don't know anywhere in scriptures where that's that's pointed to. Uh, It was more the jhanic thing based on the breath, and these uh, mortification things, but not, you don't get... Yet in his writings, he obviously pushes metta, he sees the importance of it, and uh, there seems to be some hint somewhere, um, I'm working on it, where the Buddha says that uh, metta alone is a path of liberation. But I haven't uh, haven't got... I haven't haven't got um, uh, proper proof, (laughs) scriptural proof of that yet. Um, and the path of love, uh, I think most of us would agree, you know, Christianity is very much about love. It's a guru, it's a relationship with Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, and becoming like Jesus. So, you know, as you know, I've been doing this uh, walk with St. Francis, Camino St. Francis. So he's, a, he's a, a very great example of that. And the fact that he got the, the stigmata. So now, of course, in Christian terms, he was given that by by Jesus or, or by God or whatever as a, 
a little gift, even though it hurts <laughs> and bleeds. <laughs> but I think we would probably think of it more as such a, a deep identification that the body, such a deep identification through uh, concentration exercise that you know, the, the actual manifestation of Christ's body begin to manifest in his own. So we know the power of mind. I mean, it's, you know, that would make more sense to me anyway. So, so definitely the path of love, path of... Uh, but it's also got the path of good works. And then if you were thinking about good works, uh, in a sense, you'd have to see it as Islam, because Islam is very much on the will of God. Will of God, the will of action. You know, doing things. And it, of course it exemplified mainly in their jihad. Uh, the jihad, uh, Muhammad said that the inner jihad was much more important than the outer one. But there's still the jihad. Uh, you know, force, will, and all that. So all these three paths you find, I think, in religions, but you, you, you get an accent one way or the other. And probably, I mean, you know, I, uh, probably the most balanced in a way, or at least seemingly so. I'm not sure about the good works business, but Hinduism has many saints on both sides, the Bhakti, the devotional, and the, um, and the insight one, you know. Uh, I can't remember some of the devotional ones. I um, can't remember. Ramakrishna. But the, um, uh, the insight ones, like um, Ramana Maharshi, who's very modern, and also somebody I really like, um, uh, Nisigarita Maharaj, Sri Nisigarita Maharaj. His book, I Am That, I think is quite remarkable. So, uh, that's a sort of, um, uh, shall we say, um, a run through the types that I see anyway. Right? You can comment on, on that over the weekend. <laughs> uh, but what um, we're interested now, of course, is uh, how the Buddha explains this whole business about belief and no dogmas. And... Um, the, the main, the main one that we all, that I'm sure you've all heard of, uh, is the the Kalama Sutta, and uh, we'll just read it through, mainly just to get the flavour of the discourse, you know, and the way that what comes across on the discourses are. I mean, it's formalised because it's it has to be formalised for the oral tradition, but you do get a feel for the sorts of conversations that would have carried on. And uh, the sort of Socratic thing, where you're asking the person a question, and they and they have to give you an answer. That's very much all the way through the scriptures. Um, although the Buddha gives talks, he's very much in conversation, starting off with some sort of problem that's been brought in, and and, and he always sort of leans the conversation to a point uh, to really, if to find out what the person's opinion is, where they are. And then he, uh, he tends to show the error of that. And then when they see the error of it, they're open to his own understanding. And then he darts in with his own understanding. And lo and be tied, uh, for the most part, they all, <laughs> they all take him as their teacher. Not always. Some go away clicking their, their, their tongues. So here's the Blessed One. And he's arrived at uh, Kesaputta amongst the people called the Kalamas. Now the Kalamas of Kesaputta heard, it is said that the ascetic Gautama, the Sakya son who went forth from the Sakya family, 
has arrived in Kesaputa. Now a good report about the Master Gotham has been circulating. Thus, now the Blessed One is an Arahat, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, and teachers, the teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. So that's what we chant every morning. That's a, that's a sort of basic formula. And having realised with his own direct knowledge this world with its devas, mara and brahma, this population with its ascetics and brahmins, with its devas and humans, he makes it known to others. He teaches a dharma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end. With the right meaning and expression, he reveals a spiritual life that is perfectly complete and purified. So he's obviously got a very good reputation by the time he gets to the gods. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a pain, isn't it? So then the, uh, the, the Kalamas approach him, you see, and they pay homage. And it's interesting how various people paid homage, depending on their relationship to the teacher. Uh, it seems though the, the, highest, the highest homage was to walk around the seat three times. Uh, others would just uh, anjali, you know, uh, bring their hands together. And others would just uh, call out their name and their clan and then take a seat. So it's all sort of varied ways in which you would um, approach somebody. Well, it says, some, some uh, exchanged greetings with him, and after greetings and cordial talk, they sat down to one side. Some resoluted him reverentially and sat down to one side. Some remained silent and sat down to one side. Then, they said to him, Venerable Sir, some ascetics and Brahmins who come to Kesaputta explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, debunk, revile, and vilify the doctrines of others. But then some other ascetics and Brahmins come to Kesaputta and they too explain and elucidate their doctrines but disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of others. For us, Venerable Sir, there is perplexity and doubt as to which of these good ascetics speaks the truth and which speaks false. So now here's the, you know, the famous passage, you see. So it is fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. <laughs> it is fitting for you to be in doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about the perplexing matter you see? So uh, he, he agrees with them that they are in fact confused. And then, <laughs> come Kalamas. So now uh, this, this very famous statement, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of texts, by logic, by inferential reasoning, by reasoned cogitation, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by seeming competence of the speaker, or because you think the ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves, these things are unwholesome, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. You see? So <clears throat> these, these four, uh, uh, four categories really cover everything. So we're talking about um, spiritual authority, scriptural authority, yeah? oral tradition, lineage of teaching, hearsay, collection of texts. Uh, that's where a fundamentalist would place themselves, isn't it? They place themselves directly into a, um, an ex, you know, their, their texts, what the text says. And then you get the four uh, rational grounds, so logic, inferential reasoning, reasoned cogitation, and accepting of you after pondering it. So this is more the modern thing, isn't it? So you've got fundamentalists, uh, you've got people who will only look at the texts, and that's it. And even though, even though they have a reason to it, they'll only accept what has been reasoned in the past. It's a very, fundamentalists are very much based in the past. Whereas um, the modernists, uh, I mean, by that people, you know, brought up in, 
in the, uh, the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, uh, really relying also on their own rationality, on their own logic. So even that you can't depend upon. You can't depend upon your own uh, logical thinking. Because remember, all, all logical thinking has to be based on a premise. If the premise is wrong, that's the end of it. So, I mean, um, I think that's one of the, um, how can we say, one of the doubts of present-day um, people that you can't, you can't believe anything because uh, beliefs in the past have caused such a huge problem. So, for instance, once you believe you're uh, in, in, in a racist understanding, then you end up with some form of Nazism. If you believe in, in the proletariat and all that sort of stuff, you end up with a form of communism. So, but the, if the premise is wrong, then the whole thing becomes quite nasty and evil. And these days, of course, we're stuck with this um, uh, capitalist consumerism, materialistic capitalism, which is a world religion. <laughs> and, and that's it. And, and the basis, we know the basis, I mean, most thinking people know that the basis is, is greed and, and all that. It shouldn't be there. But... Um, uh, uh, it's, it's, that, it's that understanding that you cannot trust your logical thing. You always go, have to go back to the premise to see whether what you're basing all your this fantastic architecture of philosophy on. And if that's wrong, then the whole thing's a complete waste of time. Worse, creates a lot of problems. And then, of course, there are authoritative persons, so impressive speakers and respected teachers. And uh, <clears throat> and that gives us our, our breakdown, really. Um, so that, that depends on your relationship to somebody. Yeah? And there's a later one which I'll quote uh, a, bit, a bit later concerning how the Buddha says that people should actually uh, uh, find a critique about him. How do they know that he's fully liberated? So he doesn't, he doesn't even let himself off the hook. See? So then, of course, the conversation, now, once he's, once he's cleared the boards and said, look, don't believe anything, right? Uh, but then he puts to them a really a, uh, a manner of, of Socratic uh, conversation where he asks a question and, and they, they answer it. So he's very basic, you see. What do you think, Kalamas? When greed, hatred, delusion arise in a person, is it for their welfare or harm? For their harm, sir. See? <laughs> Kalama is a person who is greedy, hating and deluded, overpowered by greed, hatred and delusion. His thoughts controlled by them will destroy life, take what is not given, engage in sexual misconduct and tell lies, and he will also prompt others to do likewise. Will that conduce to his harm and suffering for a long time? Yes, then will sir. <laughs> so there he's got his, there you've got your basic um, Sila, your basic uh, conduct, things that you ought not to do. Sometimes uh, we overstress that because, you know, the, the whole point of, 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 be, of being clear as to what we don't do uh, should make us clear as to what we should do. So then, of course, he really wants to drive it home. He says, what do you think, Columbus? Are these things wholesome or unwholesome? Unwholesome, venerable sir. Blameable or blameless? Blameable, venerable sir. Censured or praised by the wise? Censured, venerable sir undertaken and practiced do they lead to harm and suffering or not and how or how is it in this case undertaken and practiced these things lead to harm and suffering so it appears to us in this case it's for this reason kalamas that we said do not go by oral tradition and then he repeats himself so 
uh, again, he's, uh, you know, this, this business of accepting where a person is and then drawing them, as it were, towards the Dharma. <coughs> so, uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's twice not to go. So he really drums it home, you see. Well, I mean, this is, remember, a formalized version. And then, of course, he gives them the opposite. So what do you think, Kalamas, when non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion arise in a person, is it for their welfare or harm? See, by actually negating it, by saying non-greed, he opens up all the virtues to do with non-greed. You know, generosity, kindness, etc., etc. By saying non-hatred, by not specifying that, but saying where there's no hatred, there has to be the opposite. Because uh, you don't live in a vacuum. Hmm? And remember that these, these qualities, there's no middle ground. Sometimes people translate this as some sort of middle ground, where you're greedy and then... You're non-greedy, meaning there's nothing there. You're neither generous nor greedy. But all he's saying is there's a state in which there's no greed. And because you're always in relationship, you must manifest some relationship. And that relationship depends upon the condition, the, the situation, etc. So by saying, by saying that when I walk into the uh, dining room and, uh, and, and, and sit down to eat, there is non-greed... <laughs> You're also saying that there's a right attitude to the food, yeah? which is, you know, to nourish the body, etc., and so on. So uh, it's not as though he's saying that there's a, a state of neutrality. Hmm? Same with non-hatred. So we're always in some sort of position of love, yeah? uh, some sort of connection. And non-delusion uh, means that we, we understand we, we're in a state of wisdom. Now, is that for his welfare or harm? Or for his welfare, Venerable Sir. Kalama is a person who is without greed, without hatred, without delusion. Uh, see, here he translates it as without, you see, which makes it a bit more clear. Not overpowered by greed, hatred and delusion. His thoughts not controlled by them will abstain from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given. From sexual misconduct and from false speech, he will also prompt others to do likewise. And that's an interesting one. You know, just, uh, we're normally just, normally very, um, a personal thing, taking records and precepts, you know, things that I don't want to do. But remember that we are exemplars. Wherever we go, we, we exemplify what we actually believe in. Um, maybe not in a pure, beautiful way, but, but, but like we're there. So, you know, if, if you say to somebody, well, you know, I practice Buddhist meditation, and uh, I'm I'm a follower of the Buddha and all that sort of stuff. And next morning they find you in the gutter, completely <laughs> stupefied. Then it, it makes you wonder. You see, oh, that's the Buddha's teaching. Isn't it? So um, undertaken and practice, will this lead to their welfare and happiness or not? Or how is it in this case? Well, undertaken and practice, these things lead to welfare and happiness. So it appears to us in this case. And then. Um, he repeats the things, and then uh, he basically reinforces that, you see, uh, by telling us how we should develop. Now, so he's telling them how we should develop, yeah, how they should develop. So he says, look, noble disciples, devoid of covetousness, devoid of ill will, unconfused, clearly comprehending, ever mindful. See, that happens occasionally, doesn't it? Dwells pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, likewise the second, the third, and the fourth. Thus above, below, and across, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he dwells, pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. 
and he dwells one quarter of the mind imbued with compassion and so on with altruistic joy with equanimity he dwells pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with love compassion altruistic joy and equanimity vast exalted measureless without hostility and without ill will so here you notice he doesn't say you know uh, practice vipassana he's, <laughs> he, his, his, his advice to the kalamas here is to practice metta in all its uh, the word metta although it has a specific meaning of love we translate it as, as a non-attached or a universal uh, love yeah uh, it's often used as a meta as a well, I can't remember the figure of speeches. It's normally used to refer to the four illimitables. Sometimes. Now he says, you see, now now he connects it with the daily life, with with the effect of that, uh, both short term and long term. When this noble disciple has thus made his mind free of enmity, free of ill will, uncorrupted and pure, he's won four assurances in this life. The first assurance he has won is this. If there is another world, and if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in a heavenly world. Okay, so it's calm, you know, calm in the sense of um, your comeuppance. Huh? So here... Uh, what he's saying, I mean, this was his, one of his um, three knowledges at his, on uh, the point of, of his awakening, wasn't it? That he saw that the driving force behind all his rebirths was his ethical decisions, his ethical life. And that he saw beings moving from one realm to another, driven by the same force, ethical, ethical decisions, you see. Um, and... Um, here he's making it clear to them uh, that particular. In other words, what was had been a very personal law became universal through those through that uh, understanding upon awakening. That's one of the things he understood. This connection between delusion, the ethical life, or the non-ethical life, and how wisdom always draws you towards an ethical life, and the other way around. The more ethically you live, the more wise you must become. Because the mind and heart are connected. Now the second assurance here is one is this. If there is no other world, and if good and bad deeds do not bear fruits and yield results, um, still, right here in this very life, I live happily, free of enmity and ill will. So he's often, uh, he often points to the fact that living according to the Dhamma has immediate results. It is, it's just to be seen immediately, Fiti Dhamma. And the third one is one is this. Uh, the third assurance is one is this. Suppose evil befalls the evildoer, then I, as I do not intend evil for anyone, how can suffering afflict me? One who does no evil deed. Now that's always a big problem because you know evil, uh, horrible things do happen to good people. <laughs> so I think you always have to read this from the point of view of karma, and karma. Uh, in terms of liberation from suffering, is always internal, and it's always to do with dependence origination. I just like you know, just because you're the most peaceful, loving, compassionate, uh, charismatic, booming personality in the world, doesn't mean that somebody's not going to hate you, right? And in fact, you create a lot of jealousy in somebody, and they'll shoot you. Um, 
And, uh, you know, if you look at examples, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, uh, and all these people going right back, um, uh, you'll always find uh, Socrates himself, you see, Socrates. So uh, you always find that uh, when, when, when the Buddha's talking about uh, evil deeds or things happening to a person, you have to see it from the point of view of this inner karma, this, the wheel of dependent origination. In other words, the atmosphere we live in. Now, it doesn't mean to say that the world doesn't mirror back to us our problem. I mean, if I'm angry and I happen to meet somebody who's angry and bigger than me, I might end up in hospital. <laughs> uh, it's not so much that. It's just that when it comes to suffering, when it comes to liberation, it's always this internal thing. And I don't think we really grasp that until we realise that actually the world that we're living in is being completely manufactured within me. I, I, uh, although, of course, I'm getting information, uh, photons and, and, uh, and um, sounds coming in as, uh, as you know, air pressure and all that sort of stuff, what I actually make of it is totally dependent on my perceptual faculties. And then what I make of that and the internal atmosphere I create is, you know, my emotional life and my thoughts is, again entirely dependent on something in me. And uh, in meditation, when we open up to ourselves a little bit, we find that there's all this stuff, this leftover stuff, you know. Smelly stuff, like, like a kitchen smells after lunch, you know. It's all the leftover, you know, leftovers of yesteryear, and who knows, yesterlives, who knows. But it's that, uh, it's understanding that, that makes us uh, understand this better. Because it's quite obvious that good people suffer uh, suffer from evil coming from outside them. And then the fourth assurance, here's one, is this. Suppose evil does not befall the evildoer. Then right here, I myself am purified both ways in this respect. In other words, uh, just because the evildoer gets away with it, well, that's, that's, they're, they're, <laughs> that's their good luck. Um, and this, of course, does, uh, um, shall we say, I put a question mark on what I've just said, because here the Buddha seems to be suggesting that um, some of the uh, evil, or put it this way, we can understand perhaps that some of the evil that does befall us is uh, a reaction from somebody else towards us. Yeah. But obviously you can't, you can't talk about, um, say, an earthquake if you get squashed by an earthquake. Um, that, that's your personal karma. What is your personal karma is, is how you've experienced the process of being squashed. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> when the Kalamas, this noble disciple has thus made his mind free of enmity, free of ill will, uncorrupted and pure, he's won these four assurances in this very life. So it is, blessed one, so it is, fortunate one, when this noble disciple has thus made his mind, free of enmity, free of ill will, uncorrupted and pure, he has won these four assurances in this very life. And then this, um, before I say that, uh, when you read anything, but when you read the scriptures, you see this, this constant repetition of things. If you understand it to be a way in which, um, uh, a way in which we... Uh, absorb stuff um, in a sort of like um, where stuff can be digested in the heart you see so remember that spiritual reading is is different from reading for knowledge or reading for facts so that you can present a good argument it's really about being affected by something 
deeply. So just as you might read a poem or listen to some music and it really it draws something out of you here, you know, and you really feel it. Uh, great joy or sadness or whatever. Uh, so it is with these little phrases, you see. So um, you can take you can take some of these phrases um, and if it strikes you, you just keep repeating it, repeating it, you see. Until you get that sense of, of digestion. So even... You know, this whole idea of, of the tradition, do not go by oral tradition, lineage of teaching. See? And after you've understood it, just to keep repeating it. And it has an effect. It just has an effect by just keep repeating something in the heart towards yourself. And you get this feeling of digestion. Like it's been... And then it becomes... You don't get anything more from it. And when you go back to the text, you might find it again has an inspirational effect on you. And then finally, it doesn't do anything at all. Because whatever it, because the effect has been is complete. And there's no need to keep going over it. Um, I mean, on a, on a slightly different note, one of, the, uh, one of the things that had an enormous effect on me when I look back at it was uh, Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. It really uh, did something. And... Uh, Every time, for a while, every time I saw it, I would still get this feeling from it of um, this peculiar mixture of the complete senselessness of life and yet somehow the inherent humour of it. He has this, that quality about his, that particular play. And, um, but that, but uh, then, most later on, uh, many years afterwards, I happened to see another production. I don't know if, uh, so it was, it was a good. I just saw it as a play, you know, and beautifully acted and all that sort of stuff. But it had lost that sort of zappiness. See, so whatever that play gave me at that sort of um, spiritual level, uh, spiritual meaning, you know, emotional, the whole thing, uh, really had been absorbed. And I sometimes find that with poems, although some poems I, I read over and over again. So. Um, uh, here's the Buddha telling us how to approach the Dharma, basically. Don't do anything until you've proved it to be true for yourself. Then there's a whole section here, uh, I won't go over it mostly, but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, give you a hint of it, in which you have to investigate the teacher himself. So he's putting himself up for, <laughs> for investigation. And uh, he addresses uh, the monks, you see. A monk who is an inquirer, by the way, the word monk, remember, in all the scripture refers to all listeners. It would be better translated as listener. Yeah. Or, yeah. Anyway, a monk who is an inquirer, not knowing how to gauge another mind, should make an investigation of the Tathagata in order to find out whether or not he's perfectly enlightened. So they should investigate me, that's what he's saying to them. Um, and they, of course, say, well, we're, you know, we're rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. We have the Blessed One as our resort. So it'd be good if you could explain these things to us. And then he says, um, um, should investigate the Tathagata with respect to two kinds, states cognizable by the eye and through the ear. In other words, what you see of a person, and I, although he's actually talking about himself, uh, this in a sense is what we do with anybody, isn't it? You first of all see what they're doing, uh, and 
you hear what they're saying. So it's cognizable by the eye. So you're always so he's asking people to watch him, to see how he behaves, and to listen to what he's saying. And in this way, um, they they have to ask: Is there anything? Is there any defilement there? Any defilement that's cognizable? In other words, is some, is the is is he the Buddha doing something which is immoral, unethical? Or is there not? Is there no state? Or is it more subtle? Is it mixed? Like sometimes he's the Buddha and sometimes he's not. Yeah, sometimes he's doing naughty things without, without telling us, you see. And then he talks about, um, are there found in the Buddha or not cleansed states uh, through the eye uh, or through the ear? Um, and these uh, cleansed states, cognizable through the eye, those are you know, beautiful states, beautiful states of mind. Then you want to know, has he attained this wholesome state over a long time, or did he attain it recently? Hmm? And when he comes to know the Venerable One has attained this wholesome state over a long time, uh, then he, he has a deeper faith in that person. And then he asks, he investigates him further thus, has this Venerable One acquired renowned and attained fame so that the dangers connected with renown and fame are not found in him? Yeah? That's, a, uh, that's a common uh, error, isn't it? That people who become famous take on that sort of conceit or arrogance that comes with it. Yeah? I'm not that famous yet. <laughs> So you know how 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 does a person bear their um, uh, their reputation really? Is the one restrained without fear, hmm? or restrained by fear? Does he avoid indulging in sensual pleasures because he is without lust through the destruction of lust? See, or is he just doing it out of fear? So uh, you know you've got to watch that as well. You see. Is he putting it on, in other words? Um, and then he says, whether the Venerable One dwells in the Sangha or alone, while some there are well-behaved and some are ill-behaved, and some there teach and some there teach a group, while some here are seen concerned with material things and some are unsullied by material things. Still, the Venerable One does not despise anyone because of that. So in other words, although he's living uh, with people with, with different virtues, he's impartial. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't side with one or the other. That sort of impartiality. And so, I am restrained without fear, not restrained by fear. And I avoid indulging in sensual pleasures because I am without lust through the destruction of lust. So these are signs of the Tathagata. And then, he, and then, it's, and then it's basically sort of repeated because then he, he simply reinforces uh, those positions that we've talked about. And so... <clears throat> A disciple should approach the teacher who speaks in order to hear the Dharma. And the teacher teaches him the Dharma with its successively higher levels, with its successively more sublime levels, with its dark and bright counterparts. And as the teacher teaches the Dharma to a monk in this way, through direct knowledge of a certain teaching, here in that Dharma, 
and one become, comes to the conclusion about the teachings. He places confidence in the teacher thus. The Blessed One is perfectly enlightened. The Dharma is well proclaimed by the Blessed One and the Sangha is practicing in a good way. And then he repeats that in a slightly different way. As the Blessed One taught the Dharma to me in this way, through direct knowledge of a certain teachings here in the Dharma, I came to a conclusion about the teachings. I placed confidence in the teacher. And the Blessed One was perfectly enlightened. Uh, <clears throat> so then, finally, just to sum up this, the, the, the actual situation. And of course it is always, the proof is always in one's personal experience. When anyone's faith has been planted, rooted and established in the Tathagata, through these reasons, terms and phrases, his faith is said to be supported by reasons, rooted in vision, firm. It is invincible by an ascetic or Brahmin or David or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. That is how monks there is an investigation of the Tathagata in accordance with the Dharma and that is how the Tathagata is well investigated in accordance with the Dharma. So what he's saying here is that once we have that confidence in the teacher and we follow the teachings, then the description here is one who has attained first path and fruit. He's a noble person. Okay. So um, he's very much in line with our modern way of approaching things, you know, not, uh, not having blind faith, etc., etc., and in really questioning things, and in really, in a way, always coming back to our own personal experience. But even there, there's danger, you know, just because we've had an experience. It is, it, it is a value to have it, um, um, I know, commented upon by somebody who, who you feel has uh, the authority to do so. I don't, mean, I don't mean in authority, I mean somebody who's an authority. Very good, I can only hope that the scriptural readings and my commentary, shall we call it, <laughs> have been of some use. May you, by your practice and personal experience, finally arrive at the gates of Nibbana, sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.